Energy poverty impacts one in five people. For children, this means they don't have access to lights to read or study by after dark, limiting their opportunities. Solar Buddy is here to change that, and they're doing it with the gift of light. Solar Buddy's innovative corporate program is inspiring, fun, and educational. Through it, you'll learn about energy poverty, renewable energy, assemble your very own solar light, and pen a handwritten note. The lights and letters are then gifted to children living in energy poverty. I recently distributed Solar Buddy lights in PNG and witnessed firsthand the difference a solar light can make. Visit solarbuddy.org and join the growing community of light givers. The future is brighter with Solar Buddy. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I am interviewing Felicity Green. Felicity is the Associate Director at Spark Strategy. She brings an international perspective to her engagements as a result of her professional and academic experience. Graduating Peking University with an MBA, Felicity entered the corporate consulting world as a business transformation advisor. And as a founding member of the Spark team, Felicity has facilitated international strategy projects, developed expertise in not-for-profit go-to-market approaches, and was co-author of the briefing paper for the National Mental Health Commission Review. Wow, Felicity, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we we had a coffee yesterday and covered literally hundreds of interesting topics. So we're going to try and recreate that conversation. <laughs> Let, let's have a crack. Um, so I think let's, I, I find your background really interesting in your rationale for coming over to to spark and starting the organization that you now direct. So can you take us back to that decision on what drove you to move away from the corporate professional services side of things and start spark? Sure. So I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I spent the majority of my twenties living in China. And one of the main things that that experience left me with was a really deep understanding of inequity in the world. Now, I really wanted that sexy career as the high-flying corporate management consultant. So when I landed that gig, I thought, yep, I've got this sorted. So when I landed that that gig, I thought it was all sorted, um, got stuck in, built up those technical skills. But I think I always had this little voice on my shoulder that said, look, you've had this privilege of such an excellent education You've had uh, the life experience of seeing the inequity that I just mentioned. And do you know what? It's probably just not good enough to be using your skills just to help big corporate organizations with a a small change on their bottom line. So I was very fortunate that in the company which I worked in at the time, I developed an excellent working relationship with one of the partners there. He'd previously sold his strategy business into the firm. And we got, we got talking and said, well, why don't we spin it back out again? 
Um, I thought that sounds great. I get to also scratch my entrepreneurial itch. Um, but what I realized is my non-negotiable there was that it had to be impact driven and impact led. And what actually really quite surprised me when we did start Spark is there actually wasn't a lot going on in the social impact strategy space. I think a lot of the consulting in this space was just really superimposing corporate business strategy onto a not-for-profit model. That's that's really, really interesting. Um, I think the point that you just made there around how we've got these great skills and capabilities that we can bring to our work in the private sector, but often those skills and capabilities are not being used to benefit the organisations that need us most. And that can be because of financial restrictions or it can just simply be that there isn't that kind of brand alignment between organisations. How would you say the private sector can use its capabilities to support the not-for-profit sector? I think there's lots of ways. Um, I think there's, so basically when the, the core of our work is around strategy, but one of the things that we're fast realising is that ideas aren't enough if we're really looking for transformation in the social sector. And actually our hypothesis is that what we need is in addition to the ideas, also capability building in quite a number of areas, as well as links to capital, which we're seeing a lot of interesting things happen in the impact investing space and with some really brave philanthropy. But to answer your question, I want to focus on the capability piece. Um, when I say capability, I don't mean this at all in a patronising way in saying that not-for-profits don't have high-quality people because some of the most intelligent, most driven people I've ever met work within the sector. Um, but a lot of the time when we are changing the business model or changing the strategic direction, doing a big transformation, it's new skills that that organisation hasn't traditionally needed. So if we're talking about things like the ability to speak to market, business development, how to engage with government instead of having to hire a lobbyist, those types of skills um, I should also mention technology. It'd be a bit remiss of me not to not to go into the digital world there. I think the corporate sector nails because they're used to having to be really competitive, first to market, etc. So I think the private sector can do a lot in helping the not-for-profit space in things like mentoring, in sharing IP, in partnering, but partnering in a really deep way, not just the transactional um, traditional funding type relationship. And I think the more that we can create strong, mutually beneficial links across these sectors, the more that we blend them and the sectors become less relevant, um, that's when we'll start to see more effective transformation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So to come back to an earlier point you made there, what you realised when you were entering the not-for-profit consulting space was that a lot of the advice being given to not-for-profits was based on corporate business models and it didn't recognize the very nuanced ways that the not-for-profit sector actually operates and how did you realize that how did you realize that corporate models couldn't be just retrofitted to the not-for-profit mm. sector yeah it was really interesting because when when we first launched spark we thought yep we want to use our business skills for good but we didn't really know what it meant um, we we're very fortunate that we had a key not-for-profit client um, that was there since day dot for us. 
And that afforded us a little bit of time to exactly your point, start to um, learn some of the nuances and complexities of this very nuanced and, and complex sector. Um, and what we realized is that there was a bit of a gap, particularly in the area of integrating business model thinking to strategic thinking. And the reason that this is so important in the not-for-profit space is because, you know, in nine out of 10 cases, there's a burning platform related to funding. And that's actually often hindering the not-for-profit from achieving its impact. We get scope creep, we get competition instead of collaboration with our peers, etc. So we sort of identified this, this market gap and we thought, how do we integrate this into processes? And we found that when we were just starting with you know, your traditional environmental scan and then your competitive analysis, et cetera, strategy was too much grounded in what are organisations doing today. And we were ending up with a lot of strategies, which was today plus 10%. And we thought that's not allowing for the creativity and the innovation that's required to really do some big fundamental shifts to help both organisations but also industries and sectors really change. Um, of course, with the beneficiary and their their output outcome in mind. So we basically played with the process and we thought, are there things maybe if we, we switch around the order, um, maybe if we bring in different, different frameworks and tools, different engagement methods, and sort of where we've landed is, um, of course, to start off with objectives. But usually with objectives, these tend to be um, largely financial, so we make sure that you're considering both the financial and the impact objectives to sort of frame an engagement. Then we park some of these more traditional um, strategy approaches and instead we, we look at how do we, with our not-for-profit clients, go through a bit more of a creative process. And I think one of the key things that we've found with excellent strategy that we've seen is really around how do we engage multiple stakeholders um, that the organization's impact touches. The critical point is that within that exploratory stage, we're not looking at what the organization already does today. What we're doing is engaging with those with lived experience of the social challenge at hand. We're uh, looking at what's happening in different trends around the world through technology, partnerships, etc. What's changing in the space? What's the policy context? What are the funders looking for, et cetera? And then we start to play with different models. What, what could be different? What could be new? What can we build on, et cetera? Once that creative phase is done, then we say, all right, let's try and break the ideas. And that's where we bring in the more stress testing before, of course, planning it out in a really pragmatic way. But it's taken us a while to get to that um, overall approach. And it's not the same for every organisation. But I think probably the key thing that we've found in, with not-for-profit strategy is just parking what we have now today for the moment and being really bold and, and, and reconsidering, you know, even who our cohort is, where our geographic remit should be and what should our role be. Are we service delivery? Are we coalition builders? Are we advocates, et cetera? Those really big questions that I think sometimes when things are really, really busy and you think I've just got to do this three-year plan because that's what my board wants, we forget to question those core building blocks, which are really, I guess, the foundations for any organisation's impact. Oh, I love your approach. That's really exciting <laughs> to hear. Now, is that intentionally a human-centred design approach? 
it's accidentally a human centered design approach, I would say. <laughs> we're, um, look, we're pretty um, methodology, technical approach agnostic. Um, there is a little bit of all that's old is new again. Um, sometimes it's really important to understand um, the nuances within those approaches. We'll definitely intentionally employ participatory design rather than human-centred design approaches when we're um, engaging or facilitating workshops with certain types of cohorts, particularly those vulnerable populations. But at the end of the day, if we think of it in a really human way, it's um, in engaging and finding out you know, what problem needs to be solved and for whom. Yeah, of course. Okay, so there's some points you made there that I think we can dive into a bit more. One of them was the competition versus collaboration lens, which, as I said to you yesterday, has become my my favorite thing to talk about in this sector um, because I, I, I know I, I'm struggling to understand where competition fits into the not-for-profit sector at all um, when it, it seems in very purest terms to be an inherently collaborative space, or at least it should be. So, what, why are you advocating for collaboration rather than competition and how do you make that argument to an organisation? I think my overarching statement is there's so much to be done that if we can work together and leverage what we're all doing to maximise our impact, that should be the North Star. Um, I think, unfortunately, we see a lot of competition mainly driven through structural funding arrangements um, a lot of the not-for-profit sector is still obviously predominantly government funded. That's a very limited pool. Um, so even though you have peer organisations, you're often com competing for the same tenders. So that's one level of it. Um, another is, uh, I guess, more of a personal or ego-driven approach. Um, there's a lot of big personalities out there. And when you're also fighting for, I guess, voice, um, within your different stakeholders, a lot of the time it's on a, we do it better than the others. Um, I think if we could do more, all types of collaboration and structurally from just informal MOUs right through to structural integration, I think we would be better off. But I also understand that sometimes mergers and acquisitions aren't necessarily appropriate and won't drive the final outcome. So I don't think it's a blanket rule, but I think partnerships should always be considered when you're thinking what is the best use of our resources what are we not the best at what is not our competitive advantage how do we actually partner off to deliver that yeah yeah and I think we talk a lot here about how not-for-profits can identify good private sector partners but we probably talk less about how not-for-profits can identify good not-for-profit partners so what what would they be looking for in a partner yeah, it's funny. Um, we produced a paper, it would have been a few years ago now, and I was thinking, how do we make this engaging? And of course, you know, being consultants, we ended up with a two by two. But what we ended up doing was giving each quadrant a bit of a personality. And we decided to use a dating motif, because it's what actually really struck us as appropriate in this space. And we had different types, such as honeymooners, you know, these are the people that really, really lovey type collaborations, but it doesn't really last that long and it doesn't really go through, <laughs> you know, too far. Um, we had things like the big love in, and this is where you think more of like collective impact style um, collaborations between not-for-profits and others where it, it's complex and it goes through lots of consultation and you've got to really, really be motivated to stay in it. You've got your one-night stands which is transactional, you both know exactly clearly 
or what you're in it for and then it dissipates after that and that's actually okay as well. And then, of course, um, we have kind of our, I don't think I can even use the Brangelina example now considering considering where, where Brad and Andrew are at, but it was meant to be sort of that true love. And we looked at what makes really, really good partnerships. Of course, first of all, it's values alignment and seeing making sure that you have the same impact objectives in mind. And then it's just complementary assets and skills and looking to see where, you know, one plus one is more than three. The critical uh, success factor, I think, there is having very clear boundaries um, and also shared cultural practices. I love that. I think everything you've just said applies so nicely to dating as well as to this sector. So this is a new genre for this podcast to get into. Spin off. <laughs> Spin off. Um, no, I think I think that's really awesome. And I think, you know, as you've said there, all four types of relationships are okay. Uh, probably that initial honeymoon one was less good um, in that, you know, perhaps that phase is not very long lasting. But I think I think that's a really good lens to look at it through. And I think not-for-profits can acknowledge that maybe there's just a short-term gain that you both need. Maybe it's attracting new donors or maybe this is a long-term relationship that could evolve into a merger or acquisition or some other, some other means. Absolutely. And I think it is, you know, just to continue the metaphor, you know, it is date before you get married sometimes and trying little projects to collaborate on can be really good before really large commitments are made Um, and also that also tests whether or not the partnership can last over time in if you have leaders that change different executives that come in it shows that it's a really important strategic relationship rather than one that's just based around personalities yeah it takes time right these are things that grow over time Yeah. yeah okay cool this is really interesting. So I know that you recently uh, produced a white paper, which was relating to not-for-profit strategy. And as I was saying to you yesterday, I think strategy is an area that um, perhaps when we say we're having a conversation about not-for-profit strategy, it's hard to know exactly what you're talking about. Like, are you talking about the business model or are you talking about, you know, who your beneficiaries are and how you identify them? So what do you mean when you're talking about strategy? Yeah, strategy is, you know, my favourite topic in the world and sometimes it's hard. It does sort of end up cascading from your strategy down into your business model, down into your operating model. But in its purest form, it really is those big questions around why do we exist? What problems are we solving? Who are we solving them for? And then how can we solve them? So I think, you know, this idea of vision, mission or purpose sometimes people roll their eyes at it, but it's actually really critical to understand that. And again, probably half the time that I have that question around a board table or an executive table and I say, what is your purpose? How would you articulate that? Um, or why, why do you exist? I'll get as many different answers as there are people sitting around the table. So it's really interesting to then go through a process of looking at the evidence, looking at data, getting stakeholder insights to bring a team together to really understand that. This is why we get out of bed in the morning. This is the impact that we're creating. And it can be a really powerful piece when when you really nail that purpose. Um, I think it's really great. I've seen a few different trends recently and had the privilege of some of my clients doing this where they're being quite humble in terms of the purpose or the vision 
where they're saying, actually, this is our hypothesis. So they're starting off with belief statements and they're saying, we believe X, Y, and Z. Therefore, what we're doing, our role is to be the conduit or deliver services to or bring together people who, and then over the next five years, we're going to focus on three these three main things. I think a really good strategy should be able to be understood by anyone across the organisation. Um, it should it should not be full of jargon. Um, it should be able to be picked up and people, it's living and breathing. We get so many strategies that are just beautiful PowerPoint diagram type documents that are just hidden, embedded on a website somewhere. Um, I think if the process is done properly and it's done with bold leadership and it's also backed up, it's been analysed and it's been tested, it can be something which really, really leads an organisation to success. Yes. Okay. I've got a few questions out of that. I, so, so I think... I think to begin with, um, when for, in a practical sense, when you are yeah. supporting not-for-profits to identify what their strategy is and you said you have them sitting around a boardroom and everyone's got a different idea, what's the unifying yeah. factor? Like are you creating a theory of change with them or how mm-hmm. are you bringing it all together? It really depends where an organisation is at. Some already very much know their North Star and they have a clearly articulated theory of change and it's more we're more figuring out um, the focus for this certain period and how they're going to get there. Others, it's a much more exploratory process. And when it's exploratory, you can't rush that conversation. So you start off by getting the frame for the strategy. And, and sometimes it depends, of course, on what's appealing to the people in the room as well. Sometimes it's it's a question of why did you join this organisation? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Others will be um, much more analytical or data-driven. What are we seeing in the world and what's the change that we want to affect? And we start to get a frame for where the strategy is starting to play. We've got a lot of different tools and I think tools are just good to have in, in, in your little kit and there's not one uniform approach. I think having a cookie-cutter approach to strategy isn't going to work because different people, you know, respond to different things. Um, so sometimes it's a big workshop group. Sometimes it's more appropriate to ask everybody to reflect individually and then share back because then you avoid groupthink. Um, and sometimes it's a quicker process than that because people need to do it, you know, within a day or two as well. So we need to push it along a little bit further. So there's a lot of lot of factors in there, but I do believe it's starting off with what's important to you from an impact perspective, and then what do we actually need from a financial strength perspective to usually keep the doors open and then also thrive as well. Yeah, that's great. And I, I definitely echo the point that there is not a one-size-fits-all pathway to a great strategy. What I would say is I, I also have seen what you've talked about there that sometimes you'll spend a week writing a strategy and then it just gets put in a drawer and it kind of goes back to business as usual. Now I'd like to think that's happening less and less and people are taking strategy seriously but I imagine that one of the problems is that it actually takes a lot of resources to implement your new strategy. Like it could mean overhauling some portion of your business model, it could mean retraining your staff, um, could mean you know reconsidering your programs and what you're actually funding and that's hard. So how do you not only support the organization Mm. to write the strategy but then support them to Mm. execute it? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good point. I think the toughest part of the strategy is the implementation. 
particularly when often not-for-profit boards are the ones that create the strategy. And I don't think that that's necessarily the right formula. The boards should be the custodians of the strategy, absolutely. They should be engaged within the strategic planning process, absolutely. They're usually phenomenal individuals that have a lot of value to add. But I think it's really important that the executive and other staff are key actors in the process as well. And especially so when we've gotten past our objectives, ideas and testing phases to when we've got, you know, pretty much the crux of our strategy, then we go into the action planning. Here's where I think I can say goodbye to the board and actually work with the team on the ground who run the business day to day. And it's really worth investing the time to say, let's create the action roadmap. And here, that's where you look at every strategy that's been developed and you say, okay, when do we need to get, when do we think we need to get this strategy done by? Plot it literally across the years where the goal is and then say, well, what strategic projects will it take to actually achieve that? And then what are the interdependencies between those projects? And you start to create a bit of a map and then you notice that everything's in the first six months and you say, well, we don't have the capability or capacity to do that. So where where can we negotiate and where can we stream it out? Or where can we go back to our board and seek investment to make this happen? And I think that a lot of the time this part of the process is undercooked and it's actually really unfortunate because without that, it can actually be really disenfranchising for staff. If they see big ambitions, they see beautiful concepts, they think I want to be part of that. But do you know what? I've got my, um, it's not like I have lots of hours in the day left to just twiddle my thumbs. Resourcing the new strategy is really important. And sometimes that means making decisions about what you don't do now as well. So really making sure that that thought has followed through from ideas through to action, I think is the critical part. Yeah, definitely. And I think ancillary to that point, my next question would be when you are supporting organisations to overhaul their strategy, what are the major changes that they usually have to make? Is it usually around funding? Is it around personnel or is it around the impact of their work? If I take sort of one of our typical not-for-profit strategies, particularly if um, the strategy has to focus on, you know, increasing our financial resilience, I would say it's usually bolstering capability in areas such as business development, um, marketing. You know, we're also seeing that forced by a few policy changes, things like consumer-directed funding, moving away from block funding, et cetera, Um, but also technology as well and thinking how do we use this lever of the basically the digital lever so that we can change the way that we do things, but also so that we can reach different audiences and so that we can enable often commercialization of different aspects such as our IP or some of our assets. I would say, yeah, probably digital marketing business development would be three of the key capabilities or resources that are sometimes new to an organisation. I think that IP point is a really good one. Um, I was actually moderating a panel at a conference today on not-for-profit business models. And Mm. one of the points I made was that not-for-profits are the custodians of enormous amounts of IP and often don't don't realise that that is something that Mm. they can leverage. And that could be their Mm. logistical capabilities working Mm. in really difficult contexts or it could be other forms of IP. Um, Practically, 
how do you figure out if you have IP? And that's intellectual property. Um, mm. I try not to use too many acronyms. Um, that's intellectual property. So how would you figure out if you had it? And if you did, how can you somehow commercialize it? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll answer this one with a case study just to bring it to life a little bit. So uh, we were engaged by a fairly large mental health provider. They didn't have the usual problem that we get engaged for with, you know, declining funding. They had quite a significant amount of it. But what they didn't have was that beautiful pool of discretionary funds, which seems to be a bit of the holy grail for a lot of not-for-profits. And the executive director of that organisation really wanted that um, because they were a predominantly research organisation and he wanted to be able to research the area of basically low volume but high high severity of psychosis. So basically pe- young people who have um, very complex needs because there's not a, a large cohort of them that wasn't getting government funding. So he needed discretionary funding to do that from his own impact objectives. We went in and we had a look at their business model. They had this beautiful tri- triumvirate of research, clinical, and then skills and knowledge. We said, okay, we're not look, we're not going to touch your research, definitely not touching your clinical, but let's have a, a look under the hood at what this skills and knowledge division is. And this was essentially um, an area where they had a number of professionals who would take the research learnings and turn them into training materials. So, for example, if there was justice workers, it would train them what to do if a young person was having a psychotic episode within their care. Now, when we got in there, we saw one very quick win in terms of IP, and that was because you'd have one incredible person writing this material and then two seats down, someone writing something really similar. So there was an easy win there of just making an inventory but when we made this inventory and we sort of digitised and had a, had a look at what was there, um, we saw that it was very valuable from the impact that it was creating. But then when we spoke with the researchers, we found that there's many countries around the world where they didn't have a lot of information in the areas such as suicide prevention. So we said, well, what if you commercialise this? What if you turn this? What if you licence it out? What if you sell it module by module? And the first reaction was no way. Anything that we should be doing should be free of charge. This is immoral. Profit is a dirty word type concept. And I said, okay, but let's tease this out. At the moment, your material isn't going any further. For it to then expand and, and you know, we have to build it and localise it and translate it internationally, that does require funds. If you truly believe that you are world cutting, well, you know, leading leading the pack, you have a responsibility to get this out there. And the team worked through this concept and then they felt almost a responsibility to do that. So we embarked on a process where we, we set some really fundamental principles, which was for anywhere in Australia, this material will always be free, ready at hand for anyone that uses it. But when we have to adjust it and when we have to value add, then we'll put it on a platform. And they've actually done that and countries such as France and Canada have picked it up. It generates a very significant amount of revenue now, which means that that discretionary funding is there and the organisation's been able to, to do that research into the really severe cases of psychosis. 
Wow. Okay. Oh, what a good case study. So I think this is super fascinating because I think the concept that keeps coming up in the not-for-profit sector when we talk about becoming more commercial is why not have a user pay model? And whilst that's an ex- very exciting and very relevant to a lot of work, it's also really important to acknowledge that in many instances, users simply cannot pay. I mean, if we're talking homelessness is a great example of something that will never be a user paying model, nor would we ever want it to be because that's not the society that we want to be living in. So how, I mean, I think that's an awesome example when it is something like an online course, it makes a lot of sense to, to charge people for that. Um, how do we draw the line between appropriate user pay and inappropriate? I think one of the most fundamental questions here is who can be the customer? And I think let's take participant or beneficiary off the table when we're thinking about user pays. We get a lot of uh, clients coming to us saying we need earned revenue. And usually they come with the idea of so we'll open a cafe or we'll do a community garden or something like that. And it's just not aligned to what they do. So I think if we look at identifying what assets the organisation has, that might be IP, that might be a physical asset, um, and then thinking who will find that useful. There's another actually excellent example. It was when the NDIS was just coming in and we were working with an organisation that delivered services to uh, deaf and hard of hearing children. Under the NDIS, they didn't have the economies of scale that's really required to make that model work. What they did, which is so admirable, is they noticed that their competitor was delivering the same services and probably delivering it better, to be honest. So they they said to make this work, they also need the volume. So they gave them their whole cohort base and instead they said, we have an asset. They had some, they had a car park, which was on some prime real, real estate in Melbourne. They sold that off because that car park was very valuable to a private sector well, to private sector interest. What they did is they then took the money that they got from that physical asset, created a corpus, and then they also used the interest of that corpus to fund their competitor to deliver more services each year to their original beneficiaries. So again, they weren't thinking, how do I charge these children for the services, even those that you know might be able to pay for it, no cross-subsidization models, nothing like that. They thought, let's actually look at it more from a helicopter view shift some of the resources around the sector to really address the supply demand and then also look at what we have for other customers to further fuel that. Oh, that's really interesting. I like your point about not setting up a cafe. Um, <laughs> I think yeah. um, I think this is a really interesting concept because I think when not-for-profits are thinking, okay, how do we be commercial? There is this idea that you know, maybe we can do something completely unrelated to our business model that will earn us a revenue. So we're essentially entering an entire new market, mm-hmm. right? And then I was speaking to a fantastic not-for-profit today that was telling me that they've just set up a consulting firm as part, mm-hmm. like as a very small part of their business. And it's something that Adara is also quite well known for now. The Adara group is almost entirely self-funding, I think, because of you know, a handful of experts that do consulting for other not-for-profits. And I think that loops back to your earlier question where you said, who can be the customer? And in an instance where your beneficiary cannot be your customer, Mm. other not-for-profits can be. Absolutely. Um, I think it would be really interesting if we saw more trade 
between the not-for-profit sector. And again, I think this is something which would start blending the sectors. I mean, my 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 dream is that, you know, within a decade, we won't be talking not-for-profit, for-profit, social enterprise, social business. We'll all just be operating as great corporate citizens and self-sustainable as well. Um, I want to link back to your first comment there about not-for-profits wanting to just start businesses in completely unrelated areas. I haven't seen it work at all. I think encouraging intrapreneurship, I'm really passionate about intra instead of entrepreneurship, intrapreneurship from existing organisations is a really key lever in us going forward, but it is to then harness the skills and capabilities that are core to the organisation. So I would say if there are any not-for-profits that are trying to consider how we might diversify the business model, look at what you're really good at and build from that. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, I think you preempted there my last question, (laughs) (laughs) which is what does success look like in 10 years? Um, So if you can answer that through the lens of let's blue sky dream and say we don't have these siloed sectors anymore. Yeah. Illustrate for us, what does that look like? Yeah. So I think success is when people who are having a lived experience of a social and environmental challenge, their voice is centre to the design of any solution. And the solution has really aligned policy, the enabling environment around that in terms of funding, working spaces, partnerships, etc., is all aligned as well. And we have bold leaders that have the space and the time and the funding and the capability to continually be innovating. And we're working in collaboration. There's the service delivery, working with the, the coalition builders, working with the advocates um, to really generate system-wide change And we've sort of got two speeds of change happening. We have incremental continuous improvement, but then we get these fundamental transformational shifts coming as well that's harnessing technology, it's harnessing partnerships, and we're learning from our counterparts all over the world. There's bravery to try new things, and, you know, ultimately our inequity becomes less. Beautiful. I love that. All right, this has been so fascinating. So for any listeners who are eager to learn more about your work or perhaps get involved with Spark, where can they go? Yeah, well, they can always check out the website and come through um, our main channel. So that's sparkstrategy.com.au. Reach out to myself on LinkedIn, just Felicity Green, green like the colour, or or feel free to give us a call. I, I truly believe that sharing our ideas and our learnings and also our failures um, is the only way that we're going to continue the conversation and progress. So I'd really love if there's any responses to any of the concepts that you and I have talked about today. If anyone's got thoughts, reach out because would really love to continue the conversation. Yeah, definitely. And I would add that you produce really fantastic resources online, including your white papers. So we will link to some of them in the show notes today. I'd really encourage the listeners to check them out. No, thanks for having me. That was fun. 